Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. A dark day for the club on the football pitch, but a great opportunity to remember that what makes this club special is all of us. This is the Arsenal Vision Post-Match Podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, the Blackman, Twitter, Yankee Gunner, and this is the 500th episode of the Arsenal Vision Post-Match Podcast in one form or another. Uh, in a moment, I will introduce Paul, Clive, and Tim, but I want to start with two really important things. I love that this is the 500th episode because it is the perfect time to celebrate what a spectacular community this has been, this podcast, Arsenal, by giving back to it in the most powerful way we know how. And that is by supporting the Arsenal Foundation, the charitable foundation that reminds us that the club isn't just about when we are happy with what's happening on the pitch or when we are quite despondent, but that it is about a global community of people brought together by their love for a football club who can then go off and do incredible things, form bonds of friendship, in Tim's case, form a marriage and a family. In the case of what we're trying to do today, raise money for a good cause. On Thursday, we'll have an interview with the Arsenal Foundation about the works they are doing, both locally in the community and at the Zatari refugee camp. And we are going to give generously to that. We are going to start with a 5,000-pound donation in an effort to hit 20,000 pounds in the month of September. If everyone listening to this podcast gave one pound, we would blow that number out of the water. And I hope that we can do that because in a time when the football isn't great, what better time than to say that's not all that defines us. What defines us is our community, our camaraderie, our willingness to help one another and do it in a way that connects to our club and says this club is about class and that class is demonstrated not always on the pitch, but always through the people and through the foundation. They are wonderful people. They do incredible work. And I am absolutely thrilled to death to be able to support what they are doing in London and beyond. And like I said, on Thursday, you will hear more about the Zattery Refugee Camp and the stuff they're doing in London. Uh, last year, we were able to raise 10,000 pounds. We're going to try to double that. We will start with a 5,000 pound donation. We will be matching that later in the month. We will be giving a portion of all the proceeds on our shop. We'll be doing everything we can to make this a success. And who knows, maybe blow that number away. Maybe wind up doubling it before the month is over. But I hope that you will go there. ArsenalVisionPodcast.com is our website. And on our website, you will see the Donate tab, or link, or whatever it's called. And it takes you right to the Just Giving campaign. So, you know, it's tax deductible, goes right through Just Giving. There's all different ways to donate. No donation is wrong. All the donations are good. You can go to justgiving.com forward slash fundraising forward slash Arsenal Vision. That's a little, you know, hairy, but you can do it if you want. You can certainly Google it that way. Or you can just go to arsenalvisionpodcast.com, click on donate, or arsenalvisionpodcast.com forward slash donate. 
please help us get to the 20,000 pounds. We're going to get there. We are absolutely going to get there. And I think it shows, you know, the class of this community. And I want to thank you so much. You've been with us for 500 episodes. I hope you'll be with us for 500 more, 5,000 more. Um, I want to thank Tim, Paul, and Clyde. And we'll do that momentarily. I want to thank Andrew uh, at the ArsCast because without him, there wouldn't be an Arsenal Vision podcast. And he's been so kind and generous in helping. There have been so many people who have helped. Scott, who will be on uh, later this week, obviously. Phil Costa, who was a part of the Euro Daily podcast. And everybody else who has contributed. And everybody who is supporting our podcast on Patreon. We love you for that. It's part of the reason we can give so generously at all. Part of the reason we can do this podcast at all. Through rising and falling times in our own life. Helping put kids through college, literally. So please go to arsenalvisionpodcast.com forward slash donate. Please give to the Arsenal Foundation. Let's show that we, yeah, maybe we're doomy. Maybe we're negative. Maybe I'm, I'm a pessimist because things aren't great on the pitch. But I'm an optimist when it comes to humanity and what we can do. And, and I'm, you know, I obviously just feel super blessed to be able to do this. And, and I hope you'll join us. If you can, of course, if you have the means. Just being here listening, that means a lot too. And, and as it is our 500th episode, we're just so thankful for you. I cannot say that enough. I am at an age of my life. I have young family. You reach a certain point as an individual where you say, what am I still about? What do I still have in my life? I have this job. I have this family and that's wonderful. But like, what am I about? And this podcast has changed my life. It has, it has changed my life. And that wouldn't be the case if it weren't for Tim and Paul and Scott and Clive and you. So thank you again, go to arsenalvisionpodcast.com forward slash donate. Please give uh, to the Arsenal foundation. They are such a wonderful representative of the club. We all love. All right, let's go ahead and get started. And part of doing this is obviously giving everyone a chance to thank you for listening and for being here. So we'll start with Paul. Paul's on Twitter. Pause my pants. Paul, congratulations on 500 episodes. Woohoo! Um, yeah, it's amazing. 500 episodes. I can't believe it. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It was. Uh, I was always have this minor Beatles analogy that uh, we had this idea of being the best little podcast. Uh, around doing Arsenal stuff or like just a really good tight little podcast and uh, um, I think we've always we tried mark, to be Adam. good <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're, we're not great but we're not small anymore so anyway I thought uh, you were going to say we're, we're bigger than the Beatles that, was, that would yeah. have been a line yeah, yeah. We're, Big, we're, we're bigger than John Lennon so we, we are now comfortably one of the most mediocre mid-sized Arsenal podcasts <laughs> yeah we hit that yeah. well I I appreciate you and um you know I, I'm glad we've had the chance to do it we have learned together yeah. about Arsenal about each other about arguing online about engagement uh no it's been like genuinely it's been great and genuinely I've learned a whole load of stuff about all aspects of uh, Arsenal and myself and people. Yeah, well said. I I would definitely say that like I love that this fundraiser times out with the 500th episode because for me this is a moment to thank everybody listening as I've said and, and thank the community and thank you guys and then to be able to give back for this next month aligned with that message like it's just perfect and so we're thrilled to be able to give generously to the to the fundraiser and, and obviously again hope everybody else will. Um Tim, congratulations. Tim's on Twitter at Stoberto and thanks for being uh, here with me all this time. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, yeah, to, to, I was, Paul kind of nicked my line there with like, mm-hmm. I've learned a lot doing this podcast and I, I definitely have, but uh, more than that, I've just really enjoyed it. Sometimes it's been therapy, sometimes it's been analysis, um, you know, a, a good, I'd say healthy mixture of the two for me and I hope for the listeners as well. But um, yeah, one of the big reasons we're still doing it is because uh, so many good people respond to it and seem to like it, which is 
fantastic so thanks to all of the listeners and yeah please please if if you can please give generously to the arsenal foundation yeah, well, of course, the, the obvious point of the fundraiser is to give to those who need it most. And so if if you are able to be in the category that's lucky enough to be able to not need it most, then then that would be the time to give. And of course, it uh, wouldn't be the podcast without Clive, who's on Twitter at Clive PFC. Clive, thank you for being here, and thank you for being uh, a special part of our show and, and here for 500 episodes. 500, my goodness. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, well, well, we love it, didn't we? And let's be honest, we absolutely love it. And, and, uh, it's we really, do it. There was no one recording it. Yeah, it's really painful when we lose. We have to lose twice because we then got to talk about it immediately after, and that's and that's that's really painful. But what makes it a little bit less painful is the way people interact with us, and um, that's that's the key thing for me. And it's become a massive part of my Arsenal experience. And I hope we can I hope that's the same for many people listening that we're part of the experience of um, supporting the club. And there are times that are more difficult than others. And this is one of those difficult times. So, um, but yeah, it's not about thinking about ourselves so much. There are other people going through really difficult times. So, um, and this is our chance to just not just shout about Arsenal, shout about the club and shout about things that are not right. How about yeah. taking a breath and saying, hold on, there are some people that need some support and this is our opportunity to do that. So um, I hope people are on board with that. Yeah, the cool thing about being able to organize a fundraiser right now when things are so low on the pitch is that it really pulls into sharp focus for me that this is about a community of people globally who support Arsenal Football Club through thick and thin. That doesn't mean cheering or booing. That means helping each other. And uh, yeah, it's really cool. And so, uh, yeah, I, w- I will say on behalf of Scott also that that he is a, a valuable and fantastic part of this and uh, would have had him on today, but scheduling challenges today and trying to do the fundraiser launch and everything just made it impossible. He'll be on in the near future. And Phil Costu helped out with Euro Daily. We have had so many people um, who have contributed to this who aren't on the podcast right now. And so I want to thank them. And hopefully we'll see you for the deadline day live stream tomorrow. One last little bit of silliness before the season gets serious and starts now that preseason is over. So let's set all that aside. Thank you for joining us for the housekeeping. I know that's annoying because everybody needs to hear people scream and rage and rend their flesh and tear their hair out today. And I promise you, I will do that. I can't guarantee the rest of everybody will. We did something after the Chelsea game that we'd never done before. We started with sort of your one big thing, the big thing on your mind, because it was it was a big moment. And here we are just a week <laughs> a week later needing to start the pod the same way. So I will uh, I will defer to you, Tim, to start on a day when I think a lot of us are trying to contextualize what has happened in the start we've had to the season and maybe failing to do it, to be fair, what is the one big thing on your mind right now? Yeah, I think the one big thing on on my mind is that Arteta has very much fallen into the Arsenal washing machine, um, certainly at this point in time. And I know there are caveats about the quality of the opposition and uh, key players not being available and things like that, but doing stuff like selecting Kolasinac while he's trying to have his contract torn up um, and just selecting Cedric Suarez at all. Um, you know, th- those are those are the sort of, I guess, even changing the formation. I mean, I, I'm going to be careful, I guess, about criticising him too much for that because I criticised him for not doing that against Chelsea. But this all has the feel of the kind of things a manager does shortly before they're sacked. You know, a bit like, um, do you remember in Unai Emery's final game, David Luiz played in midfield and (laughs) David Luiz playing in midfield is like the final horseman of the managerial apocalypse. It's happened a few times in his career and it's always the game before they get sacked where they go, why don't we just put David Luiz in midfield? 
and <laughs> and it's it it just really felt like one of those like Pablo Mari being left out, which on the face of it, he's had a horrible start to the season and should be. But for Kalasinac, a left back who we're you know we're we're trying to get not even give away, <laughs> we're trying to like pay him to go away. And yet he's starting against Manchester City, and yeah, there, there, there's just there's a fair bit going on there at the moment. And I look at the players, and I just think you don't really know. Like you either don't know what you're being asked to do, or you don't believe in it. And I, I struggle to analyse some of these games at the moment because I'm looking at them and I'm thinking, not actually sure what we're trying to do. So it's very difficult to deconstruct. So that's that's my uh, that's my big thought. Yeah, and to be fair, even if you want to say like, oh, there's players missing and stuff, there's still decisions within the subset of available decisions that don't make a lot of sense. Uh, Kolasinac starting at center back, for example. We'll get to the lineup, but what is the one big thing on your mind uh, right now, Clive, other than just like some sad music and and whatever the your your depression rum of choice is? And what, what's on your mind? Yes, yeah, it's, it's sad times, right? So I suppose sometimes the club reveals itself and it reveals itself in a way that lacks so much intelligence, quality of decision-making that you sort of almost, I don't say question yourself as a fan, but you have these scenarios and there are people out there who are quite negative and some people are positive and some people just go, you know, go with the flow. But for those people who are eternally negative it's almost as if all the things they've thought about are going to come true. You, know? you can just and, uh, call me by name. <laughs> uh, well, you know, but you're not, you're not, you're not one of those people. No, I'm you know? just and, um, and there are people, I, I think they, they almost, they not say want these things to happen, but they predict the worst thing that happens. And then if something good happens, they can enjoy that. If the worst thing happens, then you know what? I was right. And for me, I always try to, um, Look for an explanation about where we're going, and I am struggling to find one. You know, now I'm trying to be um, to call about this and having a look, but you can't hide away from your authentic feelings. And my authentic feelings is Arsenal Football Club have been stupid for far too long, and the chickens are coming home to roost. And now the cracks around this club are wide open. And the people we have in tenure are not experienced enough, not strong enough, not wise enough to manage the washing machine that the club is in, not just the manager. We are open. And the thing that really dictates the club standing in the game is your ability to attract people to it and the type of people you attract. And the final coup de grace is going to be when people on transfer deadline day may choose another club and a sort of player that we should just get with our eyes shut. And then you'll know where we are. You'll know exactly where we are. And I think my one big thing is I've often spoken about the size of the badge getting smaller. You've heard me say these terms. People listening for 500 episodes have certainly heard it. should be on the bingo mug, let's be honest. Yeah. <laughs> but how, how big does the badge feel to you today? I ask you the question as Arsenal fans. How big does the badge feel? And... When you're thinking about the next step forward, then the, the, the mission statement is clear. We need to restore the size of that badge very, very quickly. Well said. Yeah, reminds me of Zoolander. What is this? A badge for ants? The badge needs to be at least two times that size. Um, 
If you haven't seen Zoolander, I recommend you do. Uh, it'll cheer you up and we all need it. Yeah, and you, you know, your point about chickens coming home to roost, Clive, is so true because, you know, we can have these debates about signing Pablo Maria. Oh, who cares? It's just a backup center back. What do you care? It's not that much money. Signing Cedric. What do you care? It's a backup right back. Would you rather have no backup right back? But like, this is why you don't bring bad players into the club because then you have to play bad players or worse, you won't even use the bad player and you have to go with something worse than that. And so that's why you have a half-interested Cedric literally daydreaming and picking daisies on the pitch against the champions of England. And Pablo Marie not even being able to start for a guy we want to get rid of because you made those moves. So the chickens come home to roost. And this is why it sucks to, to criticize the club for making dumb moves. But it doesn't help to say that they're okay. And, and that is the chickens come home to roost. My one big thought today is it's over for Mikel at Arsenal. I'm not saying he should be sacked, but it's over for him. And my reason is very simple. Big wounds heal slowly and reopen quickly. And this was a big wound. And it will be the case now that when he loses, this wound reopens. You know, we had a big wound of that eight-game winless run last year. And it closed slowly. But to Arteta's credit, he was able to get us going in a direction where for some people it healed, almost fully. For some people it couldn't. The loss to Villarreal in the European semifinal being 3-0 down to West Ham in 15 minutes. For some people, it wasn't enough. The football wasn't good enough. The results weren't good enough. But for some people, it was. But now we have this zero wins, zero points, zero goals, nine conceded through three games, and there are extenuating circumstances, and they are all mitigating. But this is a big wound. And even if he comes out of the inner lull and beats Burnley and beats Norwich, if we have a disappointing draw in the North London Derby or worse lose, this wound will reopen. If we beat Norwich but get pegged back in the 90th minute to a 1-1 against Burnley, this wound will reopen. And so I fear that now we are in that situation where his words will be extra scrutinized. When he says, oh, you know, the real fans know what we're trying to achieve, people will take it personally. When he, said, when he starts talking about the project, well, this is the project that I, we had to sign on for. I got news for you, Mikel. Managers should never talk to fans about long-term projects. Long-term projects are important, but that's internal discussion. Your job is to go win football games. People don't want to hear about Project Youth. Even if we are in a new, smart, intelligent, necessary Project Youth, you can't go trying to sell people that losing three games with no goals scored and nine is okay because we're building for the future. You have to put some points on the board and some goals on the board. So we can call it the washing machine, call it whatever you want. But I think the fear now is this is such a big wound that it will heal too slowly for him to get it all the way healed and reopen too quickly at the next cut. And there will be cuts. It's that simple. This team isn't good enough to now win the next 35 games. And so what would it take? Would it take a run of seven wins on the trot? I don't know what it would take for the wound to close, but I don't see it happening. So while I'm not saying he should be sacked for losing heavily to Manchester City, that's not my point. Please don't take it as, as that. I'm saying that I think it is done because I think what it would take for him to now recover is beyond him. And think about it this way just for a second. I name a manager. In your mind, just real quick think, is he good or bad? Klopp. Pep. Jose Mourinho. Rodgers. Nuno. Pretty much it with every one of these managers, you can, yeah, no, Tuchel, Lampard. For everyone where you say no or I'm not sure, they probably should go. Ole. For everyone that you say yes, they should probably stay. And my final point here, guys, is simply this. Can anyone say now, at this point in Arteta's tenure, that we have any idea if he's really good? The people who don't like him would say, no, he's terrible. Set that aside. That might be hyperbole. We still don't know if he's good. And you cannot be at that point this long into the project. So 
I don't see how he turns it around. It doesn't mean I'm rooting for that, but I just I think it's I think it's too much now um, for him to get it turned around where everybody be on the same page. Uh, I think we can move on to the game, but I I feel like Clive came off mute. So do you want to just respond <laughs> to that quickly? I suppose I got a. I feel as though I got to uh, exclamation point that I think. Um, when we saw the fixture list come out, we looked at those first three games, and all our eyebrows collectively went upwards. We thought, crikey, this could be rough. When the Onstein tweet came out middle of the day on that Friday pre-Brentford, and we have four players down with COVID, we went, crikey, this could get real rough. Right? So I think to to you know, add some a point to your, to your message, Ella, because I, I hear what you're saying, and I, and I, I agree with it. For me, it's not losing the three games that we thought we may have lost. It's the how. It's the how we've gone about it and the messages that we're seeing from the pitch to our eyes, to our brains. I think that's the thing that shocked people. The the lack of intensity, the effort, the organization, the indecision, the tactical approach to games, not understanding how the other team's going to play, changing your shape for the Man City game when that should have been the shape for the first two games and you actually go back to your normal shape for the Man City game, in my opinion. Um, that sort of stuff to me shows a lack of intelligence and that's the sort of stuff that we expect this guy to be quite good at. And once mm-hmm. you start to fray at the things that you think is his primary skill, you then look around at the things that he can't do, which are the things that come with experience. And so I feel... That's the issue. It's not the zero points after my game, which is really tough for people. Two weeks sitting looking at that table is not easy for people. That can be rectified in three or four games. It's how this has happened. And the only thing that's going to save this club and these players is that they recognize what they're not doing and put in performances that people are really going to be quite proud of and recognize. And I think that's the key thing is the how this has happened that people are really waking up to in the last couple of days, and their 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 trust is really really um has been broken, Ero- eroded. Yeah, broken. yeah. And every, again, everybody wants this to work, but ask yourself this: How long do you want to wait, and how low do you want to go? Because that that's the delicate balance. I think the scary thing, Tim. I'll, I'll throw this to you for a second. You know, we've given this guy a lot of money to spend this summer. We built the project in some ways around the decisions he wants. Ganduzi is expendable because he's a see you next Tuesday. And Saliba is expendable because I can't work with him. And, you know, I, I want to bring in a goalkeeper with the money we have. And I want to bring in this center back. And I'm not saying any of these are right or wrong. I'm just saying we've let him guide that decision. It It is. <laughs> scary. That's a big thing to do. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit scary, especially if you think he's going to be gone by November. And maybe he won't. But, like. I guess what I would ask you is, you know, you look at the news today, Tim, and it couldn't be set up worse for Arsenal just in terms of people comparing and contrasting. We're in a right-back crisis. Looks like Spurs are spending $30 million on one from Barcelona. We can't move our young players. Looks like United are getting $30 million for Daniel James. Um, and all the while, our right-back that some people want starting is literally adding the club, <laughs> tagging the club in an Instagram post, all black with crying emojis, just saying, I just want to play. So it's not, I don't know if you saw that. That's Maitland-Niles yes. who did that. So, yeah. I mean, it's not great, but do, do you, does it resonate with you when I, I talk about this being too big a wound for him to get fully healed? Or do you think yeah. that, that that is a, a misplaced analogy? 
Uh, no, 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 um, because you're right, he's probably going to have to do quite a lot and probably more than maybe we're capable of. But definitely on on your point there, like we've really thrown, um, you know, we've really thrown our lot in with him and these were his transfers this summer. And so what you've got to hope is, and, you know, we've got some, some doubts about a couple of them um, and obviously like fairly sane, rational people are kind of saying, well, okay, let's see them play first. But you know, quite a lot of us are kind of saying, I don't remember him being brilliant, <laughs> but yeah. okay. So essentially what has to have happened this summer is because Mikel Arteta's talent ID so far hasn't been very good. Um, some of the players he's brought in have been, like Pablo Mari is his player, right? And he's he's torched him, like he torches a lot of players and I mean, certainly with the Ainsley Maitland-Niles thing, I think what we're seeing, we're building up a picture of a, a guy who doesn't really have any man management skills or has very limited man management skills. And he's struggling to, because again, part of the art of management, it's not just coaching the players on the pitch. You know, you've got 20 odd, I mean, in our case, closer to 30 players and you've got to keep them all on board and all happy, even when they're not playing. And Arteta's approach to that, I mean, so far, I, I do kind of get he inherited some some tricky, I guess, some tricky individuals or or, or at least people who are in tricky situations. But the answer always just seems to be burning people out and and you know just like banishing them. And you just you can't do that. And it just looks like he's given himself the problem that he arguably inherited in like Mustafi and, and Ozil and things like that. Like he's given himself that problem again, having like having, you know, the club having paid some of these guys to leave, he's now created even more of that and just like not been able to keep some of these players on board. And like, you know, Pablo Mart, like it again, if if I were um the Cronkies, um, and obviously that they probably don't even know what the score was this weekend, but an engaged ownership might be like, hang on you brought this centre back in, he's your guy. And, you know, not only like first we had him on loan and then we bought him permanently. So like you made a decision on him twice. And you wouldn't he, let us sell Ainsley Maitland Niles. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You won't use him. <laughs> and you won't use him. Um but like the guy whose contract we're trying to tear up started ahead of it. Like, what is going on? Like that's a real admission that you don't trust your own talent ID. And and so yeah, uh, you You've effectively, like, I think the man management thing is is a big thing, and you know he, again, Genduzi, Urzil, these are these are probably tricky situations. It, it doesn't necessarily mean that he was wrong in every single scenario, yeah. but you're getting a pattern now where it's like, and like Ainsley Maitland Niles, like, so I I think he was quite immature to do that, but at the same time. That that's kind of irrelevant because it just shows you that there's an atmosphere there in that squad at the moment that's that's not great. And uh, just to wind it back to my original point, yeah, we we really got to hope that something like that essentially um, the pattern breaks on his bad talent ID with some of the players we've signed this summer. Yeah, and what I would say about the Maitland-Niles thing is it it paints a bad picture of the culture of communication inside the club. You know, we hear about this culture change and how's that working out? Has it changed yet? <laughs> is it getting better? Um, but like, if a player feels that he needs to tag the club in an Instagram tweet crying about wanting playing time, that tells me that he's immature. Fine, I, I'm not backing him all the way there, but that he doesn't feel sufficiently like he understands what's happening with him at the club. Um, 
that is acting out, but it's acting out that I think could be pre- prevented with clear lines of communication. Maybe not. You're always going to have some players that, that act that way. But, I, I mean, th- this is the other thing, you guys. This is why you can't indulge a coach all the way. Someone has to stop them. Someone has to take them by the shoulder and say no. Because if you don't let them buy Pablo Marie, and, and again, I'm not saying that was him. could have been Raul. Just hear me out. And if you don't buy Cedric, and if you don't let them chase away Saliba, and if you, you make them deal with some of these things, then you come into games where okay, they don't have Cedric to pick and they don't have to pick Colasina. Like, I guess it's just like, I think sometimes really good coaches still need someone to put them in positions to succeed and there's been no one to do that for our tactical life. But yeah, just to add a little bit on that. So I've been looking at his man management style for a while and, and, and this is really, really clear to me. He has disciples who are absolutely with him and there are those that are not. And there's not much in between. And that's what it feels like to me. Some of the contracts that have been signed tells me disciples, right? They're, they're with him, believing him. Kieran Tierney is a good example. But there are others that are really trying to catch his gaze, and they and they can't. Some don't deserve to. And I'm not, by the way, I'm not having this Gwen Doozy Ozil thing. So if someone brings that up again, I'm, I'm not having that because they're both. No, to be clear, Clive, they are they are players who fu- who fit. The, the pattern, but it doesn't mean they were wrong. In Ozil's case, I think it's almost certainly the only thing he could have done, but move on, sir. Yeah, and, but there are others who I think deserve a bit of a chance to catch his gaze, and and I think they've, they've, they've struggled for that, I and mean, I think they deserve opportunities, but you know what? Fan disagrees with manager on player selection, but for me, the outward message that isn't there somebody in the club that Maitland-Niles felt he could have reached out to rather than Instagramming out? You know? Isn't there somebody there that's that you can communicate with? So organizationally, it tells me everything's going through one guy. And I don't like that. That makes us very, very shallow. If you can't reach him, you've got to find a way to reach him. And that makes me start to think about where the power is going. And I don't like those single points of failure, as you guys know, right? So I don't like that. I don't like that. And so I look at Maitland Niles and I look back and it's a complex situation. I saw Matt speak about this on, on Twitter today. He's a complex character with people in his ear telling him this, telling him that. He's changed his tune. He, he rattled the club when he came back from West Brom, so I want my future sorted out. Obviously nothing happened and he's rattled them again today. It's frustrating for Arsenal fans when we're watching our right back being run past. We're thinking we've got this bloke here that got into England squad as a, as a fullback and doesn't want to play as a fullback, so he's probably seen that this weekend. And he said, nah, I'm letting you know I want to play as a fullback. So he is fighting for public opinion, right? So, but it, this is, we're Arsenal, what, what sort of crap is this? You know, uh, this this can't be happening. And so that tells me, I agree with him, there is an unease in this club and in this squad. I can't quite put my finger on, but none of it feels positive at the moment. You know, and I'm looking around and saying, who's going to pull this back? Who's going to do it? We, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're waiting for talent to, to spark up and do a job and put on the top corner that we can all feel better for a few weeks. That's what's going to happen, but none of it feels sustainable. And just to my last point, I think the way he manages people is very Pep-like. Ruthless, you're dead. But Pep's got a history, and he's also and a billion pounds of talent. <laughs> he's also be, he's also backed by a country that when he doesn't like somebody, he can cut their throat, and then somebody else comes in who's better and costs twenty million quid more. 
we can't keep doing that. Although some decisions I think he's made, I agree with, but that management style needs to be just tweaked a bit to fit the size of our wallet. Mm. You know what I mean? And that's why yeah. it's happening. We, we can't have this kind of asset destruction. I don't want people to think I've sidelined Paul. I haven't. Paul sidelined himself because he had a, a brief emergency, but he has stepped back into the fray, and I will give you your chance, Paul, at your one big thought. Uh, you can have many thoughts on the pod, but this is your big one. What is your big thought today? Well, uh, having sampled the conversations that were going on uh, while <laughs> I was silent, you may well have gone emotionally in our arc well beyond uh, where this is vaguely relevant. But the one thing I feel I need to do if I'm going to maintain any kind of relationship with our footballing leadership is understand to some degree what they're doing and why. And uh, so I spent some time looking at the game, trying to understand what were we thinking. And I think I worked out to a, at least to a level that I can understand what we were trying to do. So I thought I'd share that. I would love to hear that. Yeah, please. Because I can't make heads or tails of it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, can, I think I can make heads. I don't know if I can make heads and tails of it, but I think I have at least part of what the thinking was. So we have played a 3-4-3 against the big boys a few times in the past and done well and got a result. And we did it by nicking the first goal, basically, and then riding our luck from there. I think... Uh, Arteta decided to do the same thing this this time, and it explained a few things I just couldn't get my head around. So I think the elements were that we didn't exactly press, but we had a structure up front positioned to take advantage and to funnel. So you had Aubameyang. Uh, so the first portion of it was Leno punts it long. He actually launches it, gets it into their third, maybe win the, the knockdown, maybe... It falls our way. But if not, no problem. It goes to City. It goes to Ederson. And we saw that a number of times where Ederson literally has his foot on the ball and we're just standing there waiting for him to be funneled. And the, we had our two wing backs pushed up, Cedric and Tierney, so that they couldn't have any joy down the sides. We pushed them down the middle. And we did that also by positioning Saka and Obiang Aubameyang so that they could basically play it down the middle if they wanted. Um, and so deeper than them, than Saka and Aubameyang, was Odegaard forming a V. And it was kind of a positional shadow press as opposed to an active press. Behind them typically was Chaka to kind of cover the gap. And the idea was to let them play down the middle, to kind of usher them down the middle. Sounds a little weird. That's the one place we normally protect, but we didn't. Uh, and it's very, very clear that was the one area we weren't protecting. And we said, play through us. And basically, we decided to try and bang them when they came through the middle. So uh, Smithrow, uh, Odegaard, who is a good active presser, Chaka. And then that's why you had Kalasinac as one of your centre-backs, because the one thing he's done recently in the last six months reasonably well was he had a couple of games where he played in a three center back pairing where he banged people knocked the ball loose and that was our our strategy we had we created maybe five decent chances not not shots mind you just chances in the first 30 minutes before our red card and i think that was the gambit i'm not i'm not endorsing it i'm not saying it's a justification for the personnel or playing anybody, but I think that was basically it. Usher them through the middle, 
yes, we knew they would bang, knock the ball around and that Gundogan and um, what's-his-face Silva would would make runs and, and connect and stuff, but we we didn't want to sit back and get pushed further and further back over 90 minutes. We decided to force the issue, try and force a turnover, have Saka and Aubameyang up the pitch to take advantage of it. And it was a press of sorts, but not an active press. Mm. And Leno went long every time. And we were okay with that. And that's what, like, it's fascinating to watch those two, three moments where Edison's just standing there with the ball and we're saying, come on, what have you got? Unfortunately, they had quite a bit. Um, and, of course, the other problem was we were, we undid ourselves with two really stupid defensive errors that, uh, like, this probably wasn't going to work. But those dumb defensive situations made it moot, and then the red card made it triply mute. Moot. Yeah. yeah. So that that's the best I can do. It might be wrong, but... But I think that was the thinking, the plan, and to some degree, you could. Ex- There's all sorts of reasons. For not ten to minutes, pick. it was really good. Uh, yeah. eight, eight minutes, if we're being fair. Yeah, <laughs> but, and, and, and we did create other stuff. Like we we did. Uh, it just like there was the there was the time Chaka went chasing off to their left uh, fullback across the goalkeeper. Uh, we actually forced a turnover, had a shot. He was marginally offside, so it doesn't even account as a shot. Like you, There was a period of play where like they had two-thirds of the possession. So there's a psychological study on rats, and if you have two rats and one rat's bigger than the other, they like to wrestle. But the small rat only plays if you let them win a little bit. It's like wrestling with your kids, right? Uh, they don't expect to win all the time or they don't expect to win in football. But there's a ratio af- at which the small rat stops playing if, you, if the big rat doesn't let him win. And the big rat lets the small lat- rat win uh, one third of the time. And if he does that, the rat keeps playing. And I think we were the small rat uh, and we said, we'll encourage them down the middle and we'll kind of let them win two out of three, but one out of three, we'll get the ball off them and we'll be in position to do something and we'll be in their half and their third. And that's why we went long. Yeah. I just, obviously after about eight minutes, it was totally moot. Once they got ahead, it looked like our will to do it stopped and the passiveness kicked in. You you know, Tim, the, the interesting thing with this game is watching it. I was struck by how similar it felt to the West Brom game, just with the roles reversed. Yeah. Uh, higher, high-ish. And almost the score. Yeah, and almost the score. Yeah. A, a line, I joked on the instant reaction pod that uh, after 180 minutes, we edged it 6-5. But the, I mean, the defensive line wasn't even. The pressing wasn't intelligent enough. And once they realized they could get around it, then every ball they played in behind went to someone. And by the, by the time it was 4-0, they were just playing passes in, I mean, literally into all kinds of, when Sterling runs in behind free one-on-one with Leno, I shit you not, I could play that ball. And I also shit you not, I could defend that situation better. Like there was a capitulation here and I think that's what makes it so painful. But if we roll back to the lineup for a minute, um, you know, I'm curious why he did this. I mean, first of all, I I can't believe I'm going to say this, Tim, but I think he picked this lineup because it more or less worked against West Brom that he used beating West Brom's U23s as a barometer for this, and that's why Kolasinac kept his place. 
I'm just curious if you have any better thought on why he did this, and specifically, obviously, certain selections. The the one that jumps out is is Cola, but there are others that I think are pretty head scratching. Yeah, definitely. I I actually did think he might leave Murray out of this just because he left him out of the West Brom game, and and like no one other than Smith Rowe and Leno, I guess really got rested for that game. So I never interpreted that as Mari being rested. Can I ask you a sidebar Um, question then? Yeah, sure. In in the context of that feeling, do you have a take on that weird sort of, you you may not have seen it because you're at the game. Did you see the weird sort of heated animated discussion Arteta and Marie had on the bench at West Brom? Uh, I've seen a screenshot of it. So Um, do you take that as as a disagreement or because in the context of what you're saying, I'm not, I'm not really sure how to make it. Make it out. Yeah. Uh, I I didn't. So I've only seen like a screenshot of it, um, and because it, it it became a bit of a meme, so I, I didn't realize like it was a product of a heated discussion. I just thought Mari's face looked a bit funny during it. Mm-hmm. So I, I mean, it could have been. It would have been quite extraordinary for that to happen on the bench during. It was, the game. A, it was a coaching discussion. I watched it, and he was like showing them where to stand and all the rest. Of it. it looked like two players. He's kind of coaching from the bench. That's what it looked like to me. So, um, okay, yeah. I, didn't, yeah, I didn't see any, I didn't see any disagreement. But again, that's washing no, machine I, talk. I'm phrasing it right? wrong. It was just very uh, animated. At the moment, this is what I always say. When you get to this point, everything looks bad. Yeah, that's yeah. when that's when it's been cycled. Do you know, do you know what? I, I um, a, a friend of mine posted something that really made me think the other day. I, I kind of became involved in it when someone. I'm, I'm not going to name them because I think they're they're generally a really good journalist. Um, but they said something like, um, "Oh, you know, Arsenal have a culture problem, uh, kind of thing." It's it's not really about like the quality of the players; they they have a culture problem. And he just quote tweeted it and just said, "You can say anything about Arsenal," <laughs> and actually, like, because I went past the tweet and I I didn't like I didn't even think about it really. I like half ignored it really. I was like, oh, "Is it right?" Um, but when he said that, I was like. Yeah, that's right. It's because because it's open season, right? So you can say yeah. anything about Arsenal, and actually, the the problems are slightly baffling in some ways. So you you can say you can say it's leadership, you can say it's culture, you can say it's the owners. Like you can say anything. <laughs> about the, the opposite Arsenal. is true, by the way, Tim. Because if you say anything that isn't negative, you get you people get like if you're even like. I thought that was a harsh red card. People are like, oh, you want to make yeah. excuses for Arteta? What the hell's wrong with you? Yeah, yeah, precisely, <laughs> precisely. Which is, yeah, a bit like the, Mait- the Maitland-Niles thing, right? It's like, yeah. he was immature to post that. That doesn't mean that, like, Arsenal are right, though. <laughs> um, but kind of back back to your, sorry, yeah, back to your question up. about the team selection <laughs> yeah. and the lineup. I, I mean, I, I do think the Kolasinac thing, like, I don't think, if Kolasinac had had an absolute shocker at West Brom, I don't think he'd have done it. No, I think the fact that, you know, we kept a clean sheet and it was okay. I do think in that one, yes, it was a bit, well, I don't really want to use this guy at centre-back, but I'll give him a go at West Brom. And so long as he doesn't boot the ball into his own net or fall over, then, yeah, that will probably keep him his place for the City game, which I, I do still think is extraordinary. I, I kind of... I mean, I did get going for the back three, I guess, although I, I still think it made a lot more sense against Chelsea to match them up, whereas City don't really play like that. And I, I never totally agree. Yep. Uh, yeah, I never looked at it. And look, we know that when you play City away, it's a back five, it's not a back three. And um and 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 so I, I didn't look at that and think, oh, we'll be more secure now. Um, you know, that that would have given me like if I'd have seen that for Chelsea, like back three, I'd have thought, oh, okay. This is yeah, yeah. I think that's the right thing to do because you're matching up. But 
I, d- I didn't get the impression against City that it would be. The, the, the lineup was a lot more, I guess, a lot more attacking than I expected um, as well. Like, I, w- I was surprised. Like, I thought Elneny was going to play. That was another thing I thought was going to happen. And therefore, uh, and that's why I'd probably refute the theory about him seeing something work at West Brom because I, Elneny started be West Brom, didn't he? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Alongside Jackie, yeah. I, I thought he'd do that. Um, so my theory, Tim, on why Odegaard was, um, if it was about knocking the ball loose, whoever, Kolasinac, um or whoever, banging into Silva, knocking the ball loose, and we did manage to do it, it was to have Odegaard right there to set yeah. off the counter. And that's why he went aggressive with it. And like, uh, we do end up falling back into a back five, but in the first 30 minutes... Uh, we're amazing. Well, amazing is a strong word here. We're v- much more attacking than I thought we were with the yeah. two. The wing backs are right up. They're not. They're not defensive. They're they're making yeah. sure the ball out from Ederson. Uh, like there's a couple of times he goes wide and it goes out to touch, or we usher the player out of touch. Um, there's a part of it that kind of works now. Yeah, I yeah. think they would have battered us. Regardless, but uh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I guess, like, yeah. I, I think you know your your point about the wing backs pushing up to stop. You know, you you don't want to you don't want both your full backs to push up and then only have two centre backs. I guess. So I guess what it was about yeah. was we'll have three centre backs and then we can push our wing backs up. And, Not and so much three centre backs. Ball. Yeah, because like you look out at say Chaka and you see. Uh, whoever, Gundogan wandering around in this gap between him and the centre-backs, and you're like, where's our screen? And the idea was there wasn't really a screen. It was Chaka to clatter into some people, but if he ain't there, that's why Kolasinac, that's why he... uh, I think West Brom was kind of an audition for not exactly the style, but the players to get them played in. I don't think he kept Kolasinac because he did okay. And I know you weren't saying this because he did okay against West Brom. You said, oh, why don't he? I think he played him at West Brom because he. there's no way Arteta didn't have a plan already in his head for how he was going to play Pep. Uh, he didn't yeah. go to West Brom and then come up with a plan. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think that that's that's probably yeah, and because it it wasn't really the same as as against West Brom, but no. yeah, I I do I do. If Kalasanac had had an absolute disaster at West Brom, I don't think he'd have played. No, I think he probably would yeah, have and played he played him as a centre back, right? He had choices. Yeah. He could have played him as a full back, but he played him as a centre left centre back on the side of holding, and uh, well, that's why well, he played holding. Okay. Tim, let me let me ask I, you the, the question I want to ask then. So. I mean, he, he's not going to escape the Saliba argument this time. It, no. You cannot get away from it. And I'm really sorry, people. I know it's played out and it's tired. It's a very expensive, very talented young man. We have refused to use, refused to use him last year, refused to have him at preseason this year, sent him away. You can come up with whatever speculative argument you want for why he's not here. He's not here because Mikel Arteta doesn't like him. And now the player doesn't want to be here either. The fact is, he would be the best centre-back available for these first three games, and easily the third, if not better, centre-back at the club. This is exactly my point about someone has to tap the guy on the shoulder and save him from himself. So, yeah. I mean, how on earth does he escape that that scenario now? Yeah, I don't, I don't no, understand it. He, he can't, no, he, he definitely can't, for the reasons you say. Like, yeah, it, it doesn't have to mean that Saliba's starting, but yeah, there, there's no way that Saliba is... You know, worse than holding and and Mari and and you know 
yeah, Colosseum chambers, yeah, chambers, chambers, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like there is absolutely no way. Like I think definitely last year you justify sending him out on loan um, if you want to, but but yeah, this this year if you're putting someone on loan for two years, um, unless they're like seventeen or something, and definitely not like a a, a thirty million pound signing. Yeah, it's because you don't like them essentially, and <laughs> you, you, and yeah, you just you don't see a use for them. I I guess um, my slight hesitation would be in in terms of the I guess tapping the manager on the shoulder thing is would Arteta therefore have just been okay with selling him, and maybe have the club said no, we're not we're not prepared to sell, um, not at this point. Like we'll put him out on loan for a year and see how it goes because because to all intents and purposes. You know, if what we're saying, if our assumptions are, are true that he just doesn't like him, why wouldn't he just sell him? Particularly when he knows he needs to recoup some money. So I do wonder whether Edu or someone has said, "No, we're not, we're not doing that yet." Um, but yeah, he can't, he can't escape um, that yeah. conversation, and I, I'm sure he knows that. Yeah, it also I think folds in the whole question of non-negotiables because Cola was loaned out when we didn't even have a backup left back last season. I think part of that is because he was in the Ozil click. He is Ozil's boy. He's Ozil's bodyguard. He's Ozil's friend. And he was implicated in some of the stuff that Ozil was doing behind the scenes, and it's Arteta didn't want him around. And now it's not a non-negotiable anymore. Now he's starting against City. I don't know. Uh, Clive, the the game was bad. I mean, 9% possession in the second half, 18% possession in the game, the worst in the history of the club. Um, you know, we got outshot by a million uh, we got out passed by a million. We got out everything by a million. I mean, it was just a disaster. But the extent to which it got out of hand is almost certainly in some respects related to Granite Shaka getting a red card. And there's just a lot of dimensions to the discussion around that. I think one of the dimensions is, of course, refereeing. I'm not super in the mood to have the discussion. I think Chambers was punched in the face and we should have gotten that call. I think Granite Shack is red as a red. I think Paul Pogba should have been a red. Paul Pogba not getting a red doesn't what make make what Shaka did okay. The refereeing has been inconsistent and problematic, but I'm not prepared to have it be an excuse for the Shaka thing. So I'm curious how you're feeling about this leader, this guy who just got a new contract, in part because of his quality, but hugely because of his leadership, getting sent off and leaving kids out there to get their butts exposed and spanked real good in front of a a global audience. <laughs> yeah, there's a few things happened at the weekend. On the back three thing, I think he was doing the play all the fullbacks because Man City don't have a forward. They have wing forward midfielders. I want to play my most agile defenders, he says, coughing, laughing, rather than playing big six foot 100 centre backs to manage them. And that's why I think he did it. Could he have played Tierney inside and played Tavares on the outside? Probably. He chose Kalashnik. I don't think that's the biggest issue in that game. I thought the biggest issue was our midfield setup with no secondary pivot in there, but that's just my feeling. But um, on Shaka, um, maybe that is the biggest issue from the game. Forget about Kalashnik, right? The last year of his contract, free transfer, he is what he is. No, there's nothing to talk about here. But Shaka is the guy that he's really pinned his mask to, isn't he? You know, he didn't want him to go. He's one of the disciples. Well, he's in the dressing room. He gave him the captain's armband back. No drama there. He can do anything he likes. And it seems to be okay. Because other people can't do anything to get on his good side. Right? So, for me, 
I can look at Shaka and party and say, you know what, when that when they're together, we look better. We're better for it. But there are times in your management and history when you look at a player, you say, maybe it's time to turn a new page so I can bring something different to this team. I can bring something different to all the fans that are watching. Because if I know football and I know footballers, I think I've seen everything I'm going to see about this player. When he does something good, I know what that good performance looks like. And when he does that at the weekend, a flying two-footer, I've seen that before too. And it's going to cost us. And it normally comes with when the team or he is about to be embarrassed. And he bails. And we all know this, don't we? As all of you guys are nodding right now. He bails out and he leads people, and that's not leadership. And it's just, it's pretty predictable, really. And what's really, really damaging, and we said this last week, didn't we? And we said, it feels a little bit like a William move. And um, by, by getting him to re-sign, it just says to people, more than anything, what the, yeah. Yeah, what the standards are, what the accountability is, you know? It, it, it's okay for him to do some of the things that he's done and then get a pay rise. It's like, and that, it might only be a nominal pay rise, but it's what it says to people about the way the club is run. And when we're looking to sign players in the next 24 hours, this is the stuff they look at. They look at how we operate. They look at what we care about. And that dictates our ambition, our ruthlessness. When it, it, it dictates everything. And all those things, that by the way we operate, that operational excellence dictates the size of your club, the real size of your club. It's not just a fan base. It's not just your stadium. It's not just your training ground. It's how you operate as an organization what you do in adversity, how you recover, how you show ambition, how you drive standards. And that's not just a chat. That's by your actions. And, and I look and I think, we've got some improving to do there. We really have. Some people really litigate way more stuff than me. I just sort of nod my head. But this is the recent stuff. You know, we're lucky William just walked away from 20 million quid. He saved us because by rights, he should have half that in his bin. At minimum, right? So he saved us there. He's from being totally embarrassed with that move. And then we have the Shaka thing, and we just go back to it. We have a chance to change the culture, earlier really, that you spoke about, and we 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 buy into it a little bit more, and it it feels extremely limiting to what we're going to watch for the next couple of years. It feels limiting, and once you put limits on people and what they're seeing. You then start to talk about the emotion called apathy. And let me tell you, when people get apathetic, you're done. You're done. The club is done. I expect Edu to be done, and Arteta will be really struggling. So one of them is going to go in the next two months, regardless, because people already, the grumbling's already started. So one of them will have to go, and we'll be in another organizational change and another new phase of a project. And that's only going to take make our route back to the top a much much longer journey. Yeah, it's it's really really tricky and I just I'm sorry. This is a guy who you've rehabilitated back to wearing the captain's armband. He's not the captain Aubameyang is, but he he wore the captain's armband uh already this season. And this is a guy who took the armband off and threw it on the floor and strop. You can say he was provoked. We've seen what happens with this guy. You know, for me, leadership is about being up for the fight when the going gets tough. And when the going gets tough, I don't see him being that way. 
Now, maybe I'm just overreacting. Look, he had one red card last season, none the two seasons before, and two the one before that. This isn't about red cards, about decision-making, tackling technique. Let's just talk about him as a player. He's not a very good tackler. He's not very agile. And he doesn't have really good self-control of his emotions. If you want to scroll through my Twitter timeline, even though you have me blocked, he did the same thing against Chelsea early on after not getting a call. It just so happened in that case, he was so far away from the player that nothing was called. And I know a lot of people say, what about Pogba? What about Pogba? Here's the difference, too, in the context of the game. Paul Pogba is running in towards the ball, trying to nick it off, and that move results in him winning the ball and scoring a goal. One that should have been ruled out for a foul and potentially a red card. Granted, Shaka, the guy's up against the touchline. There's no danger. There's nothing happening. I mean, to be fair, every time they had the ball, there was danger, but you get my point. He just decides to go flying in because he doesn't want any part of it anymore. I've heard Paul's opinion on this on the instant reaction pod, and I have a very specific question for Paul. So, so Tim, I just want to get yours quickly. I mean, look, all I hear about is he's not just important for his play, but for his leadership. Mm. And I think he had his best season for us last season, which maybe yep. changed the appraisal of him. To be fair, he was very, very good for most of last season. In my view, still not quite what we need, but very, very good. Yep. I think that was maybe not exactly representative of how he's been at Arsenal. And I always worried, what if he goes back to more of a traditional season where he's not quite that good? But this is really what bothers me is the the argument for him as a leader. Because I, I how do you think those young 21, 22-year-old kids who had to take a 5-0 drubbing felt when they walked into the dressing room to face their leader who left them out there to get embarrassed? You know? Yeah, absolutely. It's one of those... Um... You know, like those signs like X Day since the last hurricane or something. <laughs> and you see see them in like comedies like X Day since our last nonsense. And, it's the um, Simpsons opener, right? X, yeah, X Day yeah. since last last workplace accident. Since whatever. last meltdown, yeah. Meltdown, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um yeah, exactly. And this like I, I said a lot last season, I felt he'd cut out like since that really stupid sending off against Burnley. Um, at home, I, I thought he he started to cut out the Jackerisms, um, the the kind of the time bomb that goes off every few months or every few weeks. Um, and and I've explained before why I didn't think his mistake away at Burnley was a Jackerism, as it were. In, in that it wasn't a loss of head; it was just a technical error. But yeah, this was this was Jacka gonna Jacka, um, and it's hugely disappointing. I mean. Obviously, in the context of the game, it's hugely disappointing. But like, you know, the the club was so terrified of the PR around the contract extension that I think I'm right in saying they didn't tweet about it. Um, I think he put it on You're Instagram. Right, You're right, Tim. They didn't tweet it. I'm glad you spotted that. Yeah, yeah. I think they they put it. I think they might have put it on Facebook, um, and he put it on Instagram, but they didn't tweet about it. So they know. And, you know, from, from a PR perspective, this was the last thing they needed, really, because this, this is confirmation, really, that, that that he hasn't totally got rid of that from his game. And there was, I mean, maybe, probably not for most people, but for some of us, some naive hope that maybe he'd worked that out of his game. And, you know, he's he's 29 now and he's kind of been rehabilitated as one of the leaders of the group and all of this. And he's definitely got the manager's trust and he's got a manager who played a very similar position and you kind of think, okay, all right, maybe like something's changed here. And he was very pointed, I think about Emery towards the end. Um, and you could tell that something had broken down there. Like, whereas now I, I, I think he has a good relationship with Arteta. I think it's one of the good relations cl- relationships Arteta clearly still has. So from a PR perspective, 
pretty disastrous for this to happen, particularly while the window's still just about open. Um, albeit, I don't think Arsenal are going to do anything. I think to- we'll sell him. I think there's a chance. I-, I think that we will reverse course and take whatever Roma will give us for him if they still want him. Um, and I, I think yeah. it'd be the right move. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I, they could do. They could do. Um, but yeah, it, and and obviously from a footballing perspective, it was an absolute disaster. Um, but th- this is, yeah, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, finish my thought there. Th- this is why, and look, I, I know everybody has their thing. And sometimes people just roll their eyes and go, we get it. I cannot ever get on board with culture analysis. I'm not saying culture doesn't exist, but culture analysis is so post hoc guesswork nonsense. When teams win, they have a good culture. When they lose, they have a bad culture. It's that simple. And I'm not saying there isn't a culture of winning, but good luck guessing it. Because everyone told me that Arteta was changing the culture and getting rid of Ganduzi and getting rid of Ozil and you know pulling us together and, and putting in his non-negotiables. And here we are. One of Ozil's click is starting against City, a one-away player at center back. And our academy kid, who we wouldn't sell last summer, is going on Instagram, literally calling the club out. And our young... Tyro center back is is off playing for Marseille, having little pops in the media. And our leader, so to speak, is getting red cards in big spots. And like culture, I don't know. There's rumors of a party that Lacazette and Aubameyang attended that are the reason they got COVID. I, I don't know. It's just like, don't give me culture because culture is what happens when you win. The rest of it is just guesswork. You know what makes you win? Talent. We could use more of that. And the, by the way, you know, the excuse that we were always going to lose to City, I agree, and with 10 men, certainly. But like Spurs lineup that they put out against City where they won 1-0, it's not great. Skip, Dyer, no Harry Kane. I mean, th- these aren't great players that, that are in their defense, that are in their midfield. They won 1-0. It was a little jammy, but it wasn't super jammy. The point is that like, you don't have to capitulate. It doesn't have to be this bad. And, and you know, Leno saved the Chelsea game from being embarrassing. Sterling being a bad finisher. And Leno, again, saved this from being 6-7-8. I, I mean, I'm not kidding. At, by the end of this game, the last 10 minutes, they could have scored as many as they wanted. And that's what I want to get to, Paul, is a, a tactical aspect of this, which is the pressing. I watched the Chelsea-Liverpool game, and I thought it was an excellent game. Chelsea went down to 10 men. They're a much better team, but watching the way they played, the organization, the system, the way they knew where to be, really inspiring stuff in the sense of just... That's good tactical football. Liverpool were better. Three as well. Yep, yep. But like, here's the thing I noticed. Both those teams press, and when they do it, you almost cannot get away. They don't chase the ball, Paul. They close the angles. One guy closes down the ball, and the other guys close down the angles, and you've got nowhere to go. The way we press is one guy closes down the ball, and everybody else claps. You, you still get right out. There's no, there's no suffocation because there's no... Uh, organization, they don't move as one. It's not a collective group thing. You've watched the game more. You've seen the design of it. Like, I just feel like once the energy wanes a little bit and we don't have everybody running around like their hair's on fire, there's nothing left about us because other than just running around like with our hair on fire, our press, our our defensive system, other than when we're just in a low block, it doesn't close the angles. It doesn't make it hard to play through us or around us. We saw the access that Chelsea had to Lukaku. And we saw the way they were able to go between the lines against us in City. And I realize we're down to 10 men for a large chunk of that. But when you watch it, do you see that being a problem? Because, like, I, I watching Chelsea and Liverpool, like a light bulb went off and just said, oh, it's just about angles. It's just about moving as one and closing down angles. And that's it's just not a principle that we follow. Yeah, no, when you look at Chelsea, 
doing having a similar challenge, whether it's a, a three four three against City, uh, which we had for thirty minutes, or whether it's defending with ten men. Um, you, it's kind of hard to work out why it's so much better, but it, like the, it, it's like instantaneous. You can see it's a different animal. You look at Chelsea, and you can't see how they can play through them, right? You, yeah, you, you can't. Them. You can't. You can't get access to their box. Yeah, I, I'm looking at them and thinking, "Holy shit!" Like I get it. I, I, I don't see any way through there. And like you look at our three four three, and. It seems to be nothing but holes. Now, in part, that was part of our cunning plan, but it, it wouldn't really matter, right? There's no way you'd look at our 343, no matter what exactly we tried to do with it, that you wouldn't see. It's all holes, no cheese, you know what I mean? I mean, there's cheese with holes in it, and then there's holes with a bit of cheese. And, and like, we don't move as a block. We're, like, the, now... In defense of what we did against City, I don't think we thought we were going to be great, great because we basically don't press as a, a team. We occasionally do a little bit of pressuring with our front line against other teams, but like nine times out of ten, nine games out of ten, there's no real true press as a primary instrument of our tactics. Um, so... You know, I think maybe you and I are being a little harsh, expecting us to be good at pressing. I think that's something we thought we were going to get with Arteta, that we'd have this ninja pressing Barcelona, City, uh, maybe a bit of Leeds United in there. And we don't really do any of that. From There are times in certain games where we do an active press. Now, the one thing I'd say about this game is we're not doing an active press. We're not chasing around like like lunatics there there are one or two times where there are certain triggers where you know smith Rowe will will chase after a guy who drops deep he follows silver or gundigan who receives the ball and then it's on everybody starts going man to man and and banging players but basically we wait for them to play the ball into a particular place and then we start banging players trying to dislodge the ball we're not it's not one of those three four like we don't have three guys in our front line i thought if you told me we're going to press city i would have thought we'd have say smith row uh, Aubameyang and Saka and that they're pushing up running into the box but the reason Ederson was standing on the ball was because we weren't actually actively pursuing them we were sitting in position waiting them to play into the funnel and then banging against them um, it's like uh, I'm not going to knock it as an approach um, but it doesn't fit my definition of what I thought pressing would look like I think it was a one-off tactic I don't think it's our our normal way of pressing by any means and i don't think we generally press and i don't think we're good at it and i thought that would be a primary tactic but it's it's something we occasionally try and each time it's a different kind of press yeah um, yeah yeah when you look to the one thing i'd say is when you take a look at what chelsea do and you just go wow mm. it, it it is hard not to be impressed and like I hate to say it, guys, but like Tuchel did that pretty quickly. And, you know, you look at some of the new coaches that are in places that look pretty good. I mean, Wolves have lost three games on the trot. They look great. Yeah. They look great. It's just been unlucky. That's why the manner of defeat matters. Because if you play well and it's just not going your way, people can get behind that idea. But like, 
you know, Spurs are at the top of the table with a new manager. And we saw the impact Tuchel made, you know, and, and you can go up and down the list, but there are new managers in new places, you know, that don't have their players and they're able to make an impact. And here we are almost two years later saying, is he good? What's he trying to do? Do we know yet? And I'm not sure we know yet. So that is worrying. Um, you know, I, I guess, look, there's, there's still a lot of football to be played this season too. And and so you don't, you don't want to write things off completely, but. Can I say I something on Chaka? Yeah, please. Uh, like, uh, I'll try not to get myself into trouble here. Um, like, what he did was totally unacceptable, period, and it dropped the team in it. But I don't actually think he's any different to, Ro- uh, you know, Roy Keane, Sergio Ramos, Vieira, Zidane, apart from one I totally factor. agree, but those are better players. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the pro- you can tolerate them losing their head because when they're not losing their head, they're winning you titles. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's that's the key difference here. But <laughs> like the whole oh, he's trying to get himself out of the game, or or it's or he's not a leader sh- leader, or he's a coward, or like all that stuff. He's not. It's the Chak attacks. He he can't. There's a point which he loses his shit. And I think that, like, Zidane headbutted a guy in a World Cup final. He did catch some flack for that, to be he, fair. <laughs> it didn't make any difference, did it? Like, there was a, going to be a ceremony at the end of the game where they bring on his boots and put them in the center circle because it was going to be his final ever game. That's why he lost his shit, because of the stress that in those circumstances, some guy said something about his sister, an Italian guy. He played in the Italian league. They never stopped talking about his sister in the Italian league. So, like, it doesn't make any sense when they lose their shit, but it has to do, you know, Clive hit the nail on the head. It's when they feel that we're being humiliated. In a sense, he's the one guy on that pitch who had... Uh, standards who decided this was totally unacceptable and unfortunately he has the flaw those other guys have without the talent he lost his shit and there aren't other circumstances when he's good enough to compensate for it but i don't think it's super complicated in terms of what's going on there there are certain players who the red mist descends and it doesn't matter how much they mature like Roy Keane is a lot more mature now and I know we saw him in a bunny suit or doesn't something doesn't sound like it <laughs> yeah but you put him on a pitch right now and put him in the same circumstances with the same stakes he's going to fucking lose his shit Vieira will lose his shit Zidane would lose his shit like it's in there and like I, I totally get you just you have to be a very special player for people and and like this isn't just about the red card, right? It is about yeah. decision-making. And, yep. and you know, Shaka has a decision-making issue generally. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, you, you do make a fair point. Right? No. Clive, yeah. Well, we bought five players under the age of 23. And this is a guy we need to, to carry them along and help them build their careers. Yeah. So, the, so with that in mind... I don't think that's showing the right type of behaviors. It's right? a good so, distinction because Vieira wasn't trying to build a project. Yeah, he was trying to go invincible. It, it wouldn't have mattered, though. I'm telling you, no, Vieira so would what? have lost his shit. Whether the like you so, could put ten four year olds no, on I know. the pitch with Thing is that this situation requires different type of characters. It, it, it does, but it's not. The, my point is, 
Chaka isn't looking at the situation and making decision. It's beyond his decision. James made so the same in, so argument in, on the so Arscast, Paul, so I, I, I absolutely have sympathy for that. Sorry, so, Clyde, so, so in the end, it's and what Paul's saying is not wrong. It's not about being wrong or right. It's about looking at the situation. The situation dictates how you should behave. And if you, do, if you want to behave that way, that's fine. Then the situation has different accountability. doesn't want to behave that way. Uh, but the situation then has a different set of accountabilities. Right? Zidane so the accountabilities, did not want to headbutt a guy right. in the middle of his right. final Paul, he's, World he's Cup just final. Saying, he's saying that, that then the accountability level the has accountability to change, different. players required. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. For sure. So in this situation where Shaka is in, I'm not, you know, his behavior and his character is his character. If he wants to do that, it's up to him. But in this club, well, well, in this club, he has to do something else, has to be something else. We, we've, we're we asking him, I presume, by our latest signings, we're asking him to be something else. We're asking him to maybe set an example, to be there with these guys, not get off the pitch. Right. So, mm. in my opinion, he gets the red card. That's I don't worry about it. My favourite Arsenal players had the most red cards. Right. So, he didn't bother me. It's how... But if, if he's sticking one in the top corner, if he's winning games against the best teams, we forgive everything. We really do. We forgive everything when it suits us. But when you're not doing those things on a regular basis, he's had his best period in the last six months to a year to me. When you're not doing those things, when you're doing things like throwing down the shirt and and telling the fans to do one, I'm afraid the accountability tolerance is not going to be the same. You know, for some people, same either. And some people, some people are saying, "Well, why is he still here? Let alone getting a contract." So I, I I love a justification of certain things, but there's certain things that I refuse well, to justify. You know, well, because it's not a justification, Clive. I'm you're, not no, justifying. Paul, it. your point is very straightforward and well taken, which is simply that's in his nature. That's who he is, and he can't change it, and he can't pick it. He's I think, not making the decision. He's not doing it for all these kind of. No one's disagreeing with that, though. No one's no, disagreeing. No one's with disagreeing with that. It's just it's just yeah. a phrase. What I'm saying to you is, for him, the accountabilities are not the same. As for the greats of the game, I'm talking potentially yeah, the greatest yeah. two midfielders in Keenan Vieira ever to play in the Premier League and the greatest player in France's history. The sure, capabilities are not the not same. make that point. Yeah. Anyway, all right. Well, we're like, bottom down. I fully and this, agree this with is, you, This Clive. is a semantic not, argument. It's a semantic argument now. So let's move it on. It is. But could I just say, my point was not that it's okay. Uh, no just, one thinks that's your point. Uh, everybody yeah. totally understands that he, this isn't a choice. He couldn't change it if he wanted to. I don't think he's it's a choice. Deciding it. And I by don't the way, think it's okay. I don't think he's at their standard, but it doesn't change his. He has the same wiring as those guys. He just doesn't have their fucking. Yeah, so get a different player. Then get a different yeah, player. exactly. Um, Joe, Joe yeah. Barnes got the same wiring. Yeah, he does, yeah. Uh, and and so, but the accountability no for Joey Barnes <laughs> is you're, you're done, mate. You you go. You know, Charlie so Austin. Charlie Austin. I'm not arguing way. that. I, I um, fully agree. Okay. Well, let's do this to, as a palate cleanser. The summer of soccer continues on Paramount Plus. <laughs> Why not? Because you know, you got you got to freshen up. Stream over two thousand soccer or football matches. Your choice. You know what? I just read the words. Uh, a year from around the world. That's all the heart-pounding drama from CBS Sports, including UEFA Champions League. We're not in it. Europa League, we're not in it. Itali- Italy's Serie A, Argentina's Primera División, the Brasileiro, NWSL, the Asian Football Confederation, and the CONCACAF qualifiers featuring the stars from the U.S. and Mexican men's national teams, plus much more. It's the best of the beautiful game. So is mid-table Premier League, by the way. With all the beautiful names like Messi, Mbappe, Ronaldo, Rapino, and more, be part of the excitement as champions are crowned and history is made. The world's game lives here on Paramount+. Plus. Visit ParamountPlus.com to start your free trial and stream every match live. I watch a ton of football on that service, and I have to admit, I really enjoy it. And I think their app has gotten to be 
pretty damn good. So if you want to give them a try, give them a try. Um, so, all right, now that we have gotten away from pretty much furiously agreeing with each other, but with semantic differences, <laughs> because there's really not much else to talk about, let's be honest. I do want to make the point just real quick that, like, we did have some very good players on the pitch. Like, there, there is this attitude, like, we put out, like, our, our you know, U9s, so it was expected, like, Aubameyang, Smith-Rowe, Odegaard, Saka, T- uh, Tierney, Leno, Chambers, if he was right back, I guess, holding right now. Like, like they're starters. They're all starters. Other than three defenders, they're starters. So, I, you know, I mean, you can't tell me this is the only thing that you can do. But, well, Tim, one of the performances that I feel like has to be highlighted, and I, you almost hate to pick on him, but the Callum-Chambers situation is its really a... I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say about the way that back line played. I, it looked like capitulation. It got so bad that I actually think Tierney at one point started to look like he was being dragged down to that level. And, and Clive often talks about, you know, what can happen to these players when they get into these bad situations at Arsenal. Maybe Ben White has been spared by not being available for these last couple of games. But I don't know what you can say about, about Callum Chambers because you know, we went into the summer saying, well, maybe he's starting right back. Could he be? Maybe. And now, like, I don't know. He was seeing ghosts by the end of this game. These players looked like they needed a hiding place, and and he was chief among them. Yeah, yeah. It's, it. you know, I, I, I'm kind of, I'm in two minds about this, because on one hand, you, you're quite right. The assessment was never that firm about Chambers. And by the way, we've heard nothing about his contract, have we? Um, because he was meant to have a year left with an option, and we still don't know whether that option's been triggered. I imagine it has, um, because no one seems to be talking about it. But again, it's it's not something we announced. Um, and, and absolutely, the sample size last season was was quite small. But I think you know a lot of us were thinking, well, okay, he was he was all right there last season. He seems to be able to do roughly what Arteta wants in a right back, and therefore you know, we've probably got bigger fish to fry and if we can sort it, great. But if not, it's just another can we'll have to kick down the road. Obviously, our faith in everything at the moment is completely shattered. Um, so, you know, not just Chambers, but everything. But when when you're, when you're kind of, um, your platform of belief is, is, you know, is not that high, it gets swept from under you very, very quickly. And, and that's what's happening at the moment. And, you know, in fairness... That's not just happening with the fans because Chambers was not picked for the Chelsea game and he did, he played you know at right centre back for this game. So um, the manager's faith has wavered as well, and like you can see what's happening at right back. Right, he's uh, essentially Arteta's got four options and he doesn't want any of them. Um, but with with Chambers, yeah, that that has and and I guess you could also say that maybe his expectation of what he wants from a right back has changed because we're not quite playing the same way as last season or maybe maybe we are and we've just executed really poorly or we haven't had the opportunity to play like we did last season so you know that kind of tucking in creating a back three type thing hasn't really happened uh because of other circumstances so I, like i i do expect that situation to calm down a little bit once the fixture list calms down a little bit whether it will be enough to have like a convincing season that makes you think, yeah, okay, that, that, you know, not ideal, but we'll wait till January or next summer and we'll get the right back we really want. And it's not a big deal at this moment in time. That That's kind of the best case scenario I can imagine, right? I can't, and I don't think I've ever been able to imagine that, say, next summer we'd be going, let's give Chambers a new five-year deal. He's the right back. Like, it was always a case of, 
is this good enough for a season? And that's that's always quite shaky territory to be in. But I, I guess the other thing about it as well is sometimes it's quite dangerous to have to buy too many starters in one window, I think. Um, Arsene Wenger really... was famously on record about having yeah. trouble integrating if you change the first 11 too much. Yeah, yeah, precisely. And so you could take the kind of, um, take the take the opinion that it, it might not have been a great idea anyway. But essentially, like right back is a real sign of where Arteta is is really struggling because he's got four options that he doesn't really want. And by the way, not all terrible players either. Like Hector Bellerin's a good player, right? Ainsley Maitland-Niles is a good player. Cedric isn't. And Callum Chambers is 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 decent. He's okay. Like th- this is not it's it's not the ideal set of options because Bellerin, for example, I, I just don't think is the type of right back that Arteta wants, and that's kind of fair enough. But it's not completely unworkable. Like it's not completely unworkable. There there are options there that can be worked with. And uh, the weird thing is, the only one that Arteta actually brought in was Cedric, and he's the worst of the lot. So it's 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 a it's a really confusing situation back there. And I think Chambers as well. I mean, if I were Chambers and I was, I if I were Chambers, I'd be looking at things and thinking, do you know what? Maybe I need a, like a permanent move for my career because I've you know I haven't really established myself um, at Arsenal and. Maybe I never will, and maybe I'm just at an age where I need to, like, I don't know, go to Crystal Palace or something and be a starter and, like, really decide what my position is and and kind of establish myself a little bit because it just feels like he's been he's been convenient for Arsenal for quite a few years without ever actually excelling, and I, I think mm. after a while that becomes quite, um, yeah, that becomes quite dangerous after a while. I think. Yeah, I just, this is where I really, really, really don't understand what Mikel was thinking because you cannot play a back five with Cedric and Chambers as your two right-sided defenders. There's just not enough savvy, new physicality, energy, capability, whatever the hell you want, talent on that side. That is begging to be exploited. And I mean... Poor Callum Chambers because he has some flaws as a fullback, but as a center back, he, he cannot play. Not even a little. I mean, he can't jump with guys. He can't track runners in the box. And he got ruthlessly exposed. And it doesn't give me any pleasure to say that. He seems like a lovely guy. He's been here seven years. I mean, it is wild. I want to ask you something, though, Clive, that I think is hard. And and maybe you can speak on this. Uh, This is why I thought he got it all wrong. Back three against Chelsea to match him up. Back four against City with a line of three, a straight three in front of him. Elneny. Shaka, Lukanga. Shaka drops in the pocket between the center back and the fullback. Elneny drops in the pocket between the center back and the fullback. And Lukanga can go hunt. Fine. And you keep all those little holes tucked in tight. We put a bunch of idiots in the back line and let them run around and get exposed. I don't know what we were thinking, but I think they quit, Clive. And I don't say that lightly. I watched the second half again. And after it goes to 4-0, they quit. I'm telling you, when Sterling gets in one-on-one... Nobody is playing. Nobody's pressing the ball at all. Nobody is following the runner at all. And if Sterling just has anything about him there, he finishes that, and it's six. Well, at that point, five, I believe. Um, There's another moment where they get in the header that Leno seems brilliantly. All that happens, who is their left winger at that point? I I think 
I can't remember. It might have been Sterling at that point. Is he runs inside a little bit. Cedric just stops. He doesn't track him. He doesn't follow him. Chambers goes on a, a mission to nowhere, just goes out of his hole for no reason, and they're in. So some of it is just naivety, but some of those players were not trying at that point. And maybe I don't, maybe not trying, maybe quit is too loaded a word. Maybe what I mean is they had lost the will for the fight at that point. They were really beaten down. That takes some getting repaired. I'm curious how you see that end game, that last 15 or 20 minutes or so where they had acres of space to pass the ball into the box and behind us and nobody tracking runners and nobody closing down the ball. Yeah, well, when you've got 10 men, what you don't do is you jump out and jump out of your holes because then they can just pop in around you. So you almost shuffle from side to side and try to stand still. So pressing has gone when you're down to 10. It's just about blocking, blocking holes, right? So, but let's talk, <laughs> why is Cedric here? Why do we wait six months for him to get well and pay his wages? Why do you pay a loan fee? And why do you put him into that mix just to unsettle people? Um, that's That's the issue. Why the whole Cedric deal? That tells us who we are and how we're perceived. The fact that Cedric's not a very good footballer is no shock to anyone listening and no shock to to you guys as well. You know, he has good moments. Like a lot of these players, like Callum Chambers done, over 150 appearances, seven years. Seven years is enough time to work out that maybe he's not going to take us to the promised land. You know, it's these decisions which have allowed us to be in the pack, Elliot. With well, we hope in the pack with Villa and Everton and and Leeds and and Leicester, etc. We hope we're going to get into that pack once we find our legs. But if you keep having these players in your team, regardless of what the manager sets them up with, there are certain things they can't do. So they they can't sprint into tackles. They don't take the ball beyond people. They haven't got the agility and pace which is required at the top level. I remember one of the first times <clears throat> I listened to Ken Early on, on Andrew's podcast and he said something that's always stayed with me. He said, in the world of football, he goes, for some clubs there is a shortage of talent, but there isn't a shortage of sports science. People can understand how athletes move. They can select people who can run, sprint, jump repeatedly. And the sports science level in the Premier League is way beyond Callum Chambers. And we keep buying these players and presenting them as the promised land. We have to realise there's two facets to the game of football. It's on and off the ball. And there's a reason why you can't see no gaps in Chelsea's system. Because they move, they press, they turn you around. You can't even turn around to see their goal. Let alone turn around to play a pass with no pressure. You can't play a pass without no pressure. So when you don't play, when you play a pass under pressure, it's not going to be accurate. You can't get near their defence because they've got the right type of footballs that do the work of their coach or they're made fitter to do the work. I look at our team, we're unfit. What's our response? Good player, I like him too. Let's go and get Martin Odegaard. Mm. Yeah, you heard me say it before we signed him. You know, Is there anything you saw at the weekend that Martin Odegaard's going to fix? No. Uh, it's, not, it's not against Martin Odegaard. But we keep doing this. We don't recognise what a footballer is. Leicester do. Daniel James, he doesn't, he doesn't work for us. You can pick the club he's going to go to. Sprinty guy, repeat sprinter. Who's the best running team in the Premier League? Leeds United. They're just going to go and buy him. You go, hmm, that makes sense. Because Leeds have got an identity about what they are and who they're going to play. We are a number 10 team. We're an on-the-ball team. Nice pattern, sunny day, Emirates Stadium, when teams don't want to press us. As soon as they do, 
we fall away, we crumble. I, I, did, I have not, I'm going to tell you now, for every single one of the podcasts I've done, I've watched the game. I refuse to watch this game in its entirety because I don't need that sky in my head. From the moment I saw that first goal, the first time City went near our box, they loop across to the back post and Callum Chambers can't get his fat ass off the floor to beat Gundogan in the air. Well, there's nothing to see here after that. There's no point in looking at tactics. There's nothing to see. That's just not good enough. So until we recognise that, we're not going anywhere. We are not going anywhere. We yeah. need to recognise this, and we need to simplify our thought process about what we're seeing. Yeah. You see, it really isn't I, good. I couldn't enough. agree. I, I couldn't agree with you more on everything you've said. The only area where I would diverge slightly is to say that, like, if in those small games against the minnows, against the bottom half, against the mid table, which is now, I guess, our rivals. I don't know if we were a swashbuckling attacking side, scoring two, scoring three, scoring four, and we were getting turned over in the big games. That would be sort of like the bad old days under Arson, right? Where we would finish top four, score a lot of goals, but be humiliated in the big games and not compete. I didn't like the way that felt. But you have to admit, it got us the minimum requirement. Yeah, I, we I don't could, have that. We don't have that about us either. No, <laughs> you know? well, we don't because year years on from those days, Elliot. Aston Villa have got they're using their money. Yeah, the, well. the league has changed. You're right. Leicester right. are using their money well, right? West Ham. You know, they're Jesse Lingard away from being a real threat. They're using their money well. And two years ago, their directors were getting, you know, things thrown at them in the director's box. So things can change very, very quickly, right? So they're using their money well. Other teams, Everton, are using their money well. Yeah. You know, we're not. We're not doing this right. We're not doing this right. But then can I stop you? Can I, I got to stop you. I agree. But then we got to stop justifying all the moves that don't make sense. Like, we can't have it both ways. We cannot Sorry. say, here's why I think they're signing Willian or Cedric or Marie yeah, or but, Ramsdale. That's what, but that's what we do. Say, what happened? Was, well, we have, well, we, that's what we do. Right? When, when the club has signed somebody, we can we can try and explain it to people who want yeah, to listen. Yeah. Or we can just say, it's rubbish. Well, there's channels for that, isn't there? Right? And this isn't one of them. Right? So when I say we're not doing things right, Actually, some of the things we've done recently, I'm going to take that back. Some of the things we've done recently are things I'm thinking, okay, that's interesting. More in the right direction, certainly. But, but, you, but you know what? For the moment, Arteta come in, this is what he should have done two years ago or 20 months ago when he came in. He said, I'm going to be this guy. We're going to redevelop this club. Don't do it now. Years later, then don't do it about a safety net. Don't do it with Shaco as your safety net. Get, add some more physicality and speed in the base of your team to allow some of these young players to flower. Don't put the risk factor to it. I don't mind what he's doing now, but why do you do it straight away? That's what, that then dictates what his coaching identity. Now we look like we're lurching from strategy to strategy, and I'm afraid people are not dumb. They're not going to buy it. They're no, not going to buy it. And everybody, and, and to be fair with my little tirade, everybody wants to see the best in their club. So you can't blame fans for wanting to be fans, wanting to support, wanting to say maybe this is why we're doing that. Maybe that's why we're doing that. That's our job. The job of the people running the club is to get it right. So it's a different standard. Um, Paul, as we start to wrap up, I guess I am I am curious on your take of the end game, and, and then maybe we'll get into the fallout just briefly. But like, I, the first half of the game was frustrating. But the first 10 minutes was pretty good. The punch to Chambers could have been a red card, maybe not a goal. That was harsh. Maybe the Shaka red card's a little harsh. There's, there's some things you can debate. The second half of this game, 9% possession to me. I don't care that you're down to 10 men against the champions. That's not professional. 
getting pulled apart the way we did is not professional. I mean, playing a pass that no Arsenal player ever gets within 10 yards of to Sterling running into the box is not professional. I can compartmentalize some of the first half. I can't really compartmentalize the second half, even if it is down to 10 men. I That, to me, was really... I mean, Clive said he didn't want the scar. That scarred me. That's scarred me a bit in the way the 8-2 did. And I, I, there are a lot of comparisons, by the way. We were talking about this could be an 8-2 moment. We joked, right? It's the day before deadline day. We're going to Manchester. We have a weekend squad. Could it be another 8-2? But, like, the parallels are hard to not see. But the funny thing about the 8-2 is... Everything they kicked went in the net. We weren't actually that bad initially. This this second half for me is why I'm feeling really hurt today. Do you have the same reaction in the second half? Do you have the same feeling that a lot of what went on in the the sort of last portion of that game falls maybe into the unprofessional category? Uh yeah. I look gonna say something. We're gonna hear from Mr. Ed now. Mr. Ed, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Uh Look, we didn't really have any leaders on the pitch because the one actual leader that was still on the pitch uh, had his Chaka moment. And, like, uh, you, you you could have said what you liked about him, but in the second half, I'm confident he would have got another red card. Cause, cause <laughs> he, one, yeah. You can only get one, yeah. Because he, w- he would not have accepted that shit and would not have been able to stop it either, so... Basically, he would have got a red card in the second half, too. Um, it was abject. It was terrible. I kind of, to be honest, I kind of, as we got worse, I kind of disengaged from even analyzing or trying to, like, it just seemed when it gets to a, a pile of mush, I'm just like. Get it over uh, with, him. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'm letting this go. When's the interlull? We'll have two weeks to see if we what we can spare from this we hit the reset button when the window comes we get we get some players at like i know this is thin gruel and and poor excuses but kind of we can use a lot of the ex- same excuses from last summer this summer you know we don't have as many players we need to get out but we need to get a few out there are players playing for us that don't even know if they have a future for us that can't be good for them or us can't help around the squad so thin gruel but i i went to When's the interlulls come to save me and save this squad and give Mikel his one last roll of the dice to see if he, when he has all his, whatever his players are, he'll have at the close of transfer deadline day, whoever's leaving. Uh, this isn't quite true because you can always put people on loan after the fact, but basically the squad will be, dis- and I just kind of closed down on that. Mm. This, as the second half, uh, headed into the abyss, so did my analysis of it. I just didn't think. I mean, it's you're not wrong in that there should have continued. There should have been enough people on that pitch with the leadership who gave a shit. Like I thought, like I did see it in a couple of places. I think holding Leno maintained their their cool. I'm not saying holding it a good game. I'm saying um, I understand why I see. Uh, Arteta talking to him about tactical stuff and coaching him and spending time with him because although he's not a starter, I think he does see something in holding in terms of responsibility and focus and seriousness and determination. Um, And of course you had Tierney, but Tierney was getting run ragged. 
and it was getting too much for him. But we didn't, you know, Lacazette came on and he looked like a, there was a class. He, he didn't look like he was, he was, he felt like saying thank you for dropping him in at Mikel, but he did his, he did his work and he took us up the pitch a few times and he was serious, but, but he, it wasn't something where he could drag the rest of the team. Now it was, you just wanted to look away from the train crash and yeah. that's not good. And it's not, uh, I mean, I don't think the interlull and, oh, well, well, we'll get our players in and it'll all be fine. I agree with you. This stuff wounds and you lose confidence, trust, whatever it is, quickly and establishing it. Uh, it's it's not going to be achieved by, say, beating Norwich. And I wouldn't take anything for granted at this point. It's not going to be getting a few players, play a, get a good game or two, and it's all fine. I think the game after Norwich is Burnley. And uh, like I'm not expecting that to be an easy game, even if we uh, limp our way through Norwich. So uh, it's going to be a very, very tough way forward. And that's that was damaging to the, the team psyche. That that yeah. second half, we, yeah. like if we could have declared, if we could have just handed them result and taken a five zero, that's what we should have done at the start of that half. Wave the yeah. flag, get off. Well, look, the good news is we're we're maybe moving away from the the dark times in the sense that William has officially terminated his contract and is off. So that that's that's a boon. And um, you know, if there's one thing the club's getting really good at, it's <laughs> tearing up contracts. Tim, did did you stay for the whole thing? Did you watch the whole thing? Uh, I well, I, I left uh, around about injury time, but I missed. Well, that's uh, well, I missed about the first ten to twelve minutes of the second half because I decided having a well, beer in the concourse was smart, um, but a much better move. <laughs> so I missed I mean, the fourth goal, um, which which was terrible, ruined my day really. Can can you can you can you tell me if I'm being crazy? I think the problem right is once everyone knows you've lost. I think the people at the ground, some of them leave, some of them go out and get a drink. People watching on TV pick up Twitter and just are on Twitter and watch the game in the background. I found myself glued to the game in the second half because I was really fascinated by what was happening. And like I don't... It was performance art or something. It, it, well, yeah, I mean, the 9% possession, the, the goals just being conceded, but not just that, the runners being un, unmarked into the box over and over and over again on repeat. And I can't decide if it should matter or not. I can't decide if there's a point where the, the game reaches where it's a laugher and it doesn't matter and the players tune out and City decided to keep going for it and we didn't. Do you do you care at that point? Like 3-0, 6-0, 9-nil, do you care? Is there is there a responsibility so, to protect the badge? So I mean the first thing I'd say is this the Chelsea game could have been like this if Chelsea wanted it to. Um as well. I think we all know that. I think we know they left goals on the pitch. So my my visceral reaction at the time, um, because I was quite drunk, was that I didn't really care, <laughs> which which is why I retired to the concourse at half time, and it, and and everyone did that, and so it took ages to get a beer, and and like we weren't rushing back out for the second half, and we were actually having the discussion. We were like, should we go back in at all? Like, why should we go back in? We had open um, return tickets for the train so we could get any train back. So it was a bit like, we could go. <laughs> like, <laughs> no one, what, no what is it? But yeah, yeah, but there's just something that just drives you to stay. Um, well, not everyone, but you know, there's just something that makes you think, yeah. no, some, like somehow that's just 
like it that it, it's a bit like um you know the the falling the trust exercise the falling backwards and it's really difficult because your body's just not programmed to do that and it's kind of the same um so at, at the time i didn't really care that much no because you know whatever um but had, I feel had like most I, people feel that way but i think that's letting our ted off the hook a little no, the no, big time big time so like and, and that's just because of the environment i'm i was in and um how much i'd had to drink um whereas you know looking at it in like the cold light of day like yes it does matter it does matter it does matter that players like down tools really in that game and it's funny, you know, because on the way up to the game, I, I was kind of saying the thing is about City, they fly out the blocks at you. But if you can keep them for 30 minutes, they do often run out of ideas. And of course, we're 2-0 down in like 10 minutes or something. Or as soon as we concede after eight minutes, you know, having had that discussion, it was like, yeah, no, if you if you let them score in that period, like you're done, like the game's done. And I I think, the players knew that. The players looked to me like as soon as it went to 1-0, they were just like, oh, God, here we go. And they completely lost faith. So really, even if you think it's kind of all right at 3 or 4-0, like I saw it happen at 1-0. And I think Xhaka point, yeah. essentially quit on the game as well. Like I just saw a lot of players who... And, and there were two your, other players that almost got sent off or were close on yellows. I think Cola was one of them, and I'm trying yeah, to think who yeah. the other one was. If yeah. like your faith dissolves that easily, it suggests that you didn't have very much in the first place. So yes, it, it does matter. Um, it really does. Well, so then let's do this. Let's contextualize this start to the season. Uh, sorry, end of the preseason. Season starts next week. Um, Clive, it's no points. It's no goals. It's nine conceded. We're bottom of the table. Before this season started, we knew if Brentford didn't go well, it wasn't going to be good from there. Yeah, There is a very big tension inside of me between being mad and super mad. No, I'm kidding. There's a tension inside of me between really wanting to just let it rip, being furious, being heartbroken, being beside myself and confused at how it got, got this bad. And the other part of me that says, well, you knew two of these games were going to be losses. We're not strong enough. And we were missing players. Those games were never going to go well. One of them got a little messy. The other one could have. That hurts. We did win a game 6-0 in between that was kind of fun. And the Brentford game, we played them pretty even. They got the breaks and we didn't. Like, you know, given the players that were missing, it's not far off what you might have expected. So now we just need to take a deep breath, flush that out, and we go again. I just, I know intellectually that there's a perspective where that makes sense. I know there are people that will probably cling to that and I can't blame them for it because why wouldn't you want to cling to that if you can get there? But I can't help look at the manner of the defeats, the changing of the systems, the weird lineup selections, the players sort of quitting at the end of the city game, not even getting, not not getting blown out, but not even being within a whiff of these teams. And I can't help it. It, it feels broken. So are you able to row yourself emotionally back towards that intellectual side of of all of the context and why it's okay and why we probably had this coming? Or or is there something manifestly wrong about how these three games went that despite the mitigating factors makes it more urgent and more relevant than just saying, eh, you know, we kind of had an idea this could go bad anyway? Yeah, well, it could have gone bad. But there are better ways to lose, right? So the Brentford game... I didn't know Brentford so well, but I expect Arsenal coaching staff to know Brentford better than me. And um, if they're playing three five two, well, well, that's an easy one to do. 
two big fours, hitting them early. Uh, can we just do three centre-halves against them and, and, and man-to-man them and, and show them we're better? 22 shots, we lose the game 2-0, right? So, because we're not just out-thought tactically, they managed the game better. They out they out-physicaled us. That's a worry, right? They're going to finish in the bottom half of the league. Half of the league. Then we go to Chelsea. They're cock-a-hoop. New signing, 100 million quid. Bang, there you go. Deal with him. Right, so again, the back three. We've beaten them in the back three before. We didn't do it. Just match them up. We're at home, sunny day. Maybe we can do something. Tactically inept. Game over, 2 0. And we're just scurrying around like puppy dogs after that, knowing that they're better than us and they could kill us at any moment if they chose to. Against Man City, we knew what was coming. Extenuating circumstances are there. They really are there. And and you know, we were the ones that say before the season starts, you know, it does start September the 1st. That's when we go again. And we are trying to be reasonable. But you can't help how you feel. You can't help how you feel. And to sit here as Arsenal fans, seeing us bottom of the table, it hurts, right? It, it really does hurt. Now, the fact that we've got some games that are really going to dictate where we are and how people do perceive us, so that could be too late already, because something that Tim said about the, uh, the aggressiveness of the news cycle means that we are, we are, the, we are it. We are it for a couple of weeks now until people get bored of hammering us, which is not going to be too far away. And so when we've got those games coming up, which we can all name them, we don't just need to win. We need to win convincing people there's something to believe in. And that's the key thing. Winning 1-0, lucky guy, it ain't going to work. It isn't going to work. It might help us with the table, but we need to win showing that in his, after his first preseason, Arteta has now got something for us to believe in, and I'm not sure that's going to happen. My suspicions are it's, it's not, and I agree with you, Alec. The sooner something goes wrong, I think it's going to be a tough one for him to heal the wounds that have, that have developed. Even though we knew they were coming, they still feel really deep, and that is something maybe deeper than even Arteta. Maybe that's something the way the club's been run for the last decade that's just come to the surface. And now we're looking around our competitive landscape that used to be one or two clubs. It's now seven or eight or nine. And we are nowhere near the top of that list. You know, and it's very, very concerning about how far we could actually fall. Yeah, I've got two more questions because I think we've got to get to the thing that I've been dying to say this whole podcast. Paul, what has to happen after the international break for realistically, and I'm not talking about the hysterical corners of the internet or me, what realistically has to happen for this to start to feel like just a regular club? I mean, forget a successful club, just a regular club. You cannot be in crisis all the time. Now, I realize with the football news cycle, even Manchester City and Liverpool can be in crisis after a loss, but you know what I mean. You can't be in this kind of crisis all the time. What is required realistically for... Arsenal will do on the pitch after the international break to row this back to something that looks like we're operating on calm seas or at least normal seas. <laughs> Get it? Normal sea. Normal seas. <clears throat> Very good. Uh, though I, I do like normality myself. Um, I think what we got to do um, is simplify. Uh, so we got the international break here. We get our players back. Hopefully not too many of them have to travel. Um, we get people fit, we simplify how we play, uh, we put players in the team that are committed, that are the future, 
that the supporters understand why they're in the team, that supporters understand the lineup. Uh, the most important thing is results, but uh, for the manager, he needs two things now. Um, like results would do it if he just won all the games. Like shit, shit gets good really, really quickly. But assuming he's going to have some mixed results along the way, he needs to start with a couple of wins uh, and some decent performances. He needs to be understood what his plan is. Like it, it shouldn't have taken me an hour and a half looking at the fucking game against City to work out what the plan was. I, I mean, I think I got there. I, I, for my, at my level, at my ability to understand it, it took me at least an hour to work out, watching the 30 minutes kind of jumping around, trying to work out what the pattern was. It shouldn't take me that long to work out what we're playing in a, in a game or for, for me to, to uh, reach a level of understanding as to what, how we were playing and even to some degree why we picked those players, even though I don't like any of the answers, at least I kind of understood it towards the end. And we can't, like, he's not going to have the patience of the supporters unless he win. you know, if he goes on a run of wins, no problem. But if if that's not what he can pull off, he must assume some winning, some draws and some losses. Uh, he needs to start playing the good football with the players who are go forward and no more mysterious let's go i think there's more to it than fallings out i don't think it is fallings out but what looks like fallings out to the supporters mysterious uh favorites coming in and out i think i like to think there's a lot more to it than just favorites and and who's in and who's out and all that kind of thing but it needs to start making sense real quick from the get go the performances need to match results and results need to be decent and like i think most people would be absolutely fucking delighted if he turned it around so his first few steps need to be uh, appropriate um that's on the pitch off the pitch they need to go and get themselves a director of football that everybody thinks knows what he's doing now i don't care what the name is but Arsenal needs to get themselves somebody that's a North Star that we can look at and say, well, that guy knows what he's doing. So if Arteta's gone, he's gone. If he's still here, there's a reason for it. Uh, there's a plan for our recruitment going forward. Now, it doesn't have to be a director of football. It could be a czar of footballing. Somebody needs to come in above Arteta, basically, where if Arteta's here, uh, we're he's here because that guy thinks he's good or maybe good or may come good or that there's a plan to transition away from as opposed to looking at Arteta and Edu, neither of which we believe uh, are necessarily good enough. We're sure one of them isn't good enough. We may be sure both of them aren't good enough. We need somebody in the mix where we say, this guy uh, is the business or we think is and we're mm. going to give him time so that his moves are trusted and we give those some time and Arteta and if Arteta is the man to go forward with he needs that more than any anybody does uh, whether he wants it or not 
Yeah. I, I have to tell you what resonates with me is just sort of understanding the plan, knowing what he's trying to do, and it looking like it can work. I think the reason some people got back on board last season is there was a run of games where the plan seemed pretty clear and it seemed like it was working. Now, you could say it's injuries that blew that up or this, that, or the other thing, but that's the idea. And Tim, I, I just think in general... Football's actually a lot more black and white than gray, even though sometimes I argue the opposite. Like, I, I've always said it's not a binary. Players aren't good or they're shit. There's, there's gradations. But, like, usually if you're not sure if a player's good, mm-hmm. it's okay if he moves on. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Like, you're never going to get... Like, if Granite Shaka had left us and gone to Roma this summer, we'd be fine. Not because he's shit, but because he's just not great. Mm-hmm. You only get hurt when the great players leave. And even then, you can get enough money for them that you wind up being better off. So this fear we have of players leaving, of selling Maitland-Niles or selling Eddie and Kedia or letting Granite Shaka go, like, you know, you're going to survive those moves. I think the same is true with managers. I think we have lied to ourselves that not sacking a manager is virtuous. And sacking managers is bad ethically. And it, it stems, you know, you, you'd see it all the time in English media. Like, how can this club, this club should feel ashamed they've sacked this guy? You used to hear that all the time. And almost always the guy who came in did better. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Lester sacked the guy that won them the title. <laughs> but it was time. And here, I'm going to spoil something for you. Every single manager, unless they are one of the three or four best in the world, and even then sometimes, usually leaves because they're sacked. That's mm-hmm. usually how it ends. So the funny thing is, even when they're great, it usually goes bad. And when they've never been great to begin with, I guess where this is all leading up to me, Tim, is why aren't we sacking Arteta? And I don't mean that he should be sacked. I'm saying like, like he had well, a first half season. Well, well, yeah, well, yeah. Well, I mean, he had a first half season where he won the FA Cup. Okay, that's good. The football didn't look great in the league, and he lost to Olympiacos in the Europa League, but won the FA Cup. He had a second season with no real progress, a lot of regression to start, a little bit of a bump back up, a bad European semifinal. Now we're into a third season slash second full season, whatever, with a really bad start. And we're still not sure if he's good, what his system is, what he's trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. If you want to be more patient with him, by all means, you should be. And, and I'm, I'm prepared to be. But I guess what I'm saying, Tim, is like, what are we scared will happen if we sack a guy we're not sure is any good? You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. we don't know if he's any good. That That in and of itself is telling, I think. And we're letting him make a lot of very, very big decisions at our club. Yeah, and I guess the other question you'd ask yourself is, like, if we sacked him, what would be his next job? I mean, would it be a Premier League job? Not going to be Madrid. It's not going to be Bayern. No, no, no. (laughs) I mean, definitely, definitely not. You know, he might, you know, at at what level would he go back in? Um, You know, let's say it was in England, like, would he get, like, take on a relegation candidate? You know, like, it's, it's very tricky, isn't it, to... I guess, ironically, given what I was saying at the beginning of the top podcast, it's difficult to talent ID him um, at the moment. And so, I mean, I mean you're right. I mean, I mean, I think the reason the club aren't going to do it is because, you know, tricky start, blah, 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 haven't had players available. You know, there, there are mitigations. I do feel like a lot of people, like there will just be mitigations forever. Um, but, but some of them are, are, are kind of, yeah, kind of fair enough. Um, I mean, I think the the reason the club would give you kind of privately is, oh, fuck, we've just given this guy quite a lot of money to spend in the window. And, you know, they want to give him a chance to work with his players. Um, if they were, if Arsenal was a well-run club, you'd say, well, actually, we believe in the players we've bought because we haven't just done what, like, our manager tells us to do. And we've, like, 
mutually agreed on the talent of these players and therefore we are happy that another coach can work with them. I, I Somehow I don't think that's the case. I think it's Arteta's ID'd them and therefore they are his players and therefore the club are kind of thinking, okay, so th- this these are the players he wanted and therefore you know, we've got to give him that chance to work with them and we're not sure if the next manager would want them or blah, 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 etc. Um, so I, I think that's the, the reason they'd give and it's not a reassuring one. I, I mean, I have to say, I, I do I do get it. It's one of those damned if you do, damned if you don't things because if they sack him tonight, for example, which isn't going to happen, it will be very much, you know, well, you've just given him like, like they'll look incompetent, right? Because... They've just spent 130 million on players that he wants and then like panicked at the beginning of the season. But then if they don't, um, you know, it's it's well, how how much longer do you let this situation drag on? And 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 a lot of these things, I think, when it comes to because like sacking the coach, and I know people don't like hearing this, but sacking the coach is only 50% of it. You've then got to replace him. And a lot of it is looking at the market and going. Is the guy? Is there a guy we like or want out there who who can come in and do this job? And uh, there, there might be. I'm not really seeing it because I don't like. I don't think Conte is a thing that would happen. Um, and so, therefore, like, I guess I have a little bit of sympathy in just in the respect that the manager the managerial market is thin gruel um, at the moment. And, you know, like clubs around us, like Everton and Spurs, have settled on third, fourth choices. So, you know, I don't know. I, I guess Lucien Favre, he's out there, isn't he? Um, but but that that's what it feels like. It feels like, well, I guess he's available rather than, oh, uh, yeah, there's like at least with Arteta, there was kind of a, a sense of, you know, maybe this guy is the next big thing in coaching. Um, yeah, he was available to us, and we had his phone number <laughs> quite well. I, I was fine with the appointment. I, I yeah, think what yeah. I would say, Tim, is once you suspect your manager's failing, sack him because yeah, yeah, going further, like let's say we say no, 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 this is too soon. We have to give him to December. If your suspicion is you're going to wind up sacking him in December, sack him. Then now. you have nothing left to play for that season because then you're you fifteenth, like we were last December, and, right? Yeah. And 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 you're you're staring another. F- season of no Europe in the face and you have no midweek games to liven it up. So I don't know. I just think decisiveness is what's missing at this club. It's in the mm-hmm. market. It's with selection. Mikel Arteta is still here. He's got work to do to stay here. And look, I hope Mikel Arteta is here for a long time. You know why? If he is, it means he absolutely turned this around magnificently because only a magnificent turnaround is going to get him out of this now. And I would love it. I wanted him hired. I just really am at the point now where I say the wound is too big. It will heal too slowly and reopen too easily. We can leave it there, but Clive, are you ready to do a, an emergency pod in 10 minutes? <laughs> Why? As I'm getting ready to hit stop, the AFC Bell has tweeted the following. Yeah, in the I'm next fine. few hours, some leaks may appear about one of the prominent personalities in the club. And if the information that will be published is correct... Regardless of whether it's right or wrong, there will be huge question marks on the random way in managing and making decisions at the highest level of the club. Looking forward to that, you can expect probably another podcast from us today. <laughs> <laughs> and this is what I wanted to add, because I think you know, sometimes Paul does make me laugh, right? Because he uh, he sometimes get worried about semantics around Shaka. The genius thing he said was around director of football, and there are already rumors leaking about Edu. 
And I think it'll be interesting to see what happens there. And, and some another thing that someone said the other day, Jess said actually, it made me think about um the project per se. And she said, you know, is Arteta the project? And mm. um, everyone seems to be falling by the wayside. If Eddie was to go, what does that mean? Then Paul's point is absolutely bang on. And then from there, the next manager becomes a possibility, someone that that director of football has worked with. I think that could be the next phase. Well, we'll see. These rumours, you know, in the 24 hours, this club's going to look different. You feel that on and off the pitch. You feel that something's going to break. Yeah. You can want someone to succeed and fear they won't. I just think once you fear they won't, you've already sort of made a decision. Let's leave it there. Uh, and two hours. Feels right. You know what? We match the Arscast. Let's see. I, I have their pod here. Let me see. Arscast. Uh... They they hit two hours and nine minutes, right? Or two no two hours almost on the button. You know what? That's fine. Let's keep it, going. Another. What, <laughs> I mean, we may have minutes. to. We're doing all right. All right. So let's leave it there. Paul's on Twitter. Pause my pants. Thanks, pause. Woo! Tim's on Twitter. Smarter things, Tim. My pleasure as always. Clive's on Twitter. Clive PFC. Thanks, Clive. Thank you very much. I'm rushing through the outro so that we can shorten this up, get it under two minutes. Look, um, please, please, please donate to the Arsenal Foundation through our fundraiser. You can go there, arsenalvisionpodcast.com, and, and go to donate. Um, you can also go to our Just Giving page. It'll both take you to our Just Giving page. It's tax deductible. Please, please give. Um, vote for us in the FCAs. There's a vote on the, the uh, website page. Most importantly, take care of yourself. Take care of someone else. And... Um, we will have a live stream for Deadline Day tomorrow. So please join us. That should be a laugh riot. We love you. You know what? One more time for posterity. We will talk to you after Arsenal 10, transfer window nil. 